Anyway, we're in Colossians. We're going to look at Colossians chapter 1. In the providence of God, this last week, I spoke at Twin Peaks for their winter retreat. And so when you need to come up with a sermon last minute, kind of, it's helpful to have material to fall back onto. So I have uh, about two and a half hours worth of material that I used, and I condensed it down to about two hours. So we'll see how that goes this morning. Uh, But we are in Colossians chapter 1, and uh, let's pray. And then we will dive into this text. Lord, we ask now for your help. I need it. Your people need it to hear from you through your word. Lord, I pray the things that I say would be helpful, that they would be uh, instructive, because these are your words. This is your truth. So give us ears to hear and hearts that are soft to receive the seed of your word. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So just because I I taught this, only a handful of you were at at Twin Peaks. This doesn't mean that you get sleep or you can leave, so just know that. In Colossians chapter 1, what I want to do this morning is I want to look at this idea of union with Christ. We're going to look at uh, who Christ is, what he's accomplished, And what that means for us is we have been united to him, this doctrine of the union with Christ. And we'll talk about that here in just a minute. But we start with this this idea. There's a great difference between knowing about Christ and knowing Christ in a personal and saving way, right? We understand this personally, right? You can know a lot of things about another person, but not actually know them personally, right? There's a big difference, You know a lot of things about historic people, but you would never know that person personally. You can know facts about the gospel and know truths about who Jesus is, but not truly know Jesus in a saving and a personal way. And the defining factor that I would say is between knowing someone and knowing about someone is that it's mutual, right? You know them and they know you. It's the way that 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 works. Well, in all of Paul's epistles... In other places in the New Testament, he uses a phrase to distinguish those who truly know Christ in a saving way and those who simply know about him. That phrase is something like in Christ or with Christ or in him or with him. Or we sometimes use another phrase to sum up all of those phrases and we call it union with Christ. Now, you think about that word union and we can think of different things to understand the concept of that. You think about the union of marriage. What are we talking about there? You two are no longer two individuals. You're now one flesh. You're one new family. You're one new entity. Call it a union. We live in the the United States of America, right? Not independent states from one another, but united around one common thing. We're one nation. We're not a bunch of independent nations or states. We're united. So for Christians to be in Christ, we are saying that we are united to him. And this union with Christ has far-reaching implications for our lives. And understanding union with Christ helps us understand that there is a vast difference between knowing about Christ and being united to him. There's two critical components that, we're gonna, that I'm going to just kind of introduce you to this morning. And they're brought up by Jerry Bridges in his little booklet, Who Am I? on Identity in Christ. And he identifies them in these two different ways. We have a representative union with Christ and we have a living union with Christ. Now by representative union, what he means is that 
I am united to Christ so that when God sees me, he sees Christ. All of Christ's perfect righteousness is accounted to me. All of my sin has been imputed to him and has been dealt with. It's not that God simply overlooks our sin, just sweeps it under the rug, but no, rather it has fully and finally been dealt with in Christ. Christ has actually taken our sin and our disobedience and our rebellion upon himself. He has borne the wrath that God had against us in himself and given to us his perfect righteousness and obedience. That's representative union. A living union means that we have an active and vital relationship with Jesus Christ. Aaron read this morning from John 15. That's what it's describing. Christ is our life. Our relationship with Jesus is not that he is in heaven and we are down here alone to try and figure it out, right? He saved us and then goes, okay, guys, now figure it out on your own. No, he is our very source of life. By means of the Holy Spirit who indwells us, we can say that Christ lives in us. Our living union with Christ means that all of those realities of the representative union have actual bearing on how I live my life. They actually mean something. It's not just theological verbiage. John 15, of course, Jesus uses that illustration of the vine and the branches, and the branches are connected to the vine. And where do the branches get their nourishment from? From the vine. John Calvin called Christ the, the vital sap, right? His life is our life. His life begets life in us. Where does spiritual life in you come from? It's from Christ. Now, many Christians, I think, struggle because they don't understand this doctrine of union with Christ. Therefore, we don't cherish what we have by being united to Christ. We don't live from that reality. We know, we, we, we know we're saved from our sins. We know that it's not by our own merits that we're saved. But we often live as if God is not our father. Rather, he's an angry judge who's always disappointed in us. We seek to live the Christian life through our own effort and our own strength rather than depending upon the spirit who indwells us, who gives us Jesus. I was reading, and it, this morning I've been reading a lot of Richard Sibbs, the Puritan lately, and his book, um, The Bruised Reed, just talking about Jesus not uh, breaking the, the broken reed and quenching the smoking flax. And he has this chapter where it's just titled, Believe Not Satan, Believe Christ. And he has this wonderful statement that he says, Let us not believe Satan's representations of Christ. When we are troubled in conscience for our sins, Satan's manner is then to present Christ to the afflicted soul as a most severe judge armed with justice against us. But then let us present him to our souls as offered to our view by God himself. Speaking about Christ here. Christ holding out a scepter of mercy and spreading his arms to receive us. When we understand the doctrine of union with Christ, we understand this is the one who welcomes us with open arms. We understand that picture of the prodigal son and the father receiving back at him, receiving him back. So Colossians 1, as we look at Christ and how we're united to him, it's instructive as it reminds us of God's gracious, loving care for us, his merciful disposition towards us. Now, what I want to do this morning is, at the camp, we focused on 
verse 3 all the way through verse 23. And what I want to do is I want to summarize big sections and then hone in on little sections, okay? So that we're not actually here for a two and a half hour sermon. Um, And then what I want to do is I want to make seven points or seven observations about what this implies, what this means for our being united to Christ. So the first part here is verses 3 through 14. And Paul here is He's, he's giving thanks to God, and it's a prayer. Right? He's giving thanks for what God has done in the lives of the Colossians, and then he's asking that God do some more things. So let's read these verses. He writes, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. And so from the day we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Excuse me while I take a drink of water. In the first verses three through eight, Paul is giving thanks to God for the salvation the Colossians have. The faith he has heard about that has been reported back to him. And he gives thanks because he wants them to know, first of all, that salvation is all of God, right? You did not conjure this up. Rather, God, this is all of God, and he is to be thanked for their faith in Jesus Christ. He also gives thanks because the gospel is doing what it says it will do. It's bearing fruit, producing in their lives. And then he moves in verse 9 to prayer. Right? And his prayer is essentially that the Colossians would know further what he has just given thanks for. Right? He prays that they would know in a greater dimension what God's will is. And that they would come to know God's will as they study the scriptures, right? That's how we know the will of God for our lives and his will and purposes for everything, right? He prays they might have endurance and patience and joy. And you need those things for difficult seasons in life. He prays that they would give thanks to the Father just as Paul has done as they recognize that salvation is all of God. He's the one who has qualified them in verse 12 to share in the inheritance, this glorious salvation in Jesus Christ. So when we talk, when I mentioned earlier about union with Christ and having those two elements, representative and living, I think you see both of these here, right? Paul's prayer that they would have a better grasp of what they have in Christ, that's representative. Understand who you are in Jesus Christ, what, what that you have of his, But then he also prays for that, I think what we see, that living union, right? How do you have endurance, patience, and joy other than that Christ is your vital sap, as John Calvin said. That's a living union. 
By virtue of being united to Christ, his life throws, flows through them. They endure. They grow more patient. They have joy in all seasons of life. And then verses 13 and 14, these are really critical for us to understand our union with Christ and what has happened, right? Verses 13 and 14 describe what has happened so that we can be the recipients, recipients of an inheritance, all right? Verse 12, he says, you've received this inheritance, the glorious uh, the, the qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Now, an inheritance is always a nice thing to receive, right? Nobody's ever received it and they're like, well, I don't really want to cash that check. I don't need the money. Um, but a large inheritance is even better, right? If you get a, a large sum of money from a wealthy relative, that's great. But an inheritance does different things for different people. Right, if you are a wealthy person and you receive a large inheritance, what happens to your state in life, your status, your quality of living? Not really much, right? If you're pretty good, now you just have more to add to it. But if you are impoverished and you're in deep debt and you have nothing to your name and then you receive a large inheritance, what does that do for you? Totally transforms your life, right? You're delivered out of debt and poverty and even more than that, you're taken into a, now a life of wealth and luxury, right? That's what Paul is describing for us spiritually in verses 13 and 14, right? He says, the father has delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The receiving of an inheritance happens because of a great transfer of wealth, so to speak, a spiritual wealth. So this leads me to my first two points about union with Christ. Point number one, I think I put these on the screen, Wyatt, so that you can see them while I read them. Union with Christ means I am now in the kingdom of Christ, right? Jesus is king. One day we believe he will come back to earth and he will rule as king, but even now he's in heaven as a king and I am now in his kingdom, right? There's two domains in the world, kingdom of darkness ruled by Satan and the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of light. If you're united to him, you are now in that kingdom. Secondly, the second point builds off of that union with Christ and entrance into the kingdom of Christ only comes about because God has forgiven me my sins through the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. How do I enter this kingdom? Because God has forgiven me my sins through Jesus. Consider this more. This is astounding to think about. Jesus is the king of the kingdom in which we've been transferred to. And the king has done what is necessary to bring his subjects into his kingdom. Right? That's what that idea of redemption is. To redeem something is to buy it back. And oftentimes in the New Testament context, it's used in, in connection with the slave market. Right? So a person would go and redeem a person out of slavery. They would buy them back and purchase their freedom. So the picture is the same for us spiritually, right? We are sold into the slave market of sin under the control of another master. And Jesus, through his atoning work on the cross, buys us out of that. He purchases our freedom. But the, the, the other thing that's amazing about that is the slavery that we are sold into with sin and Satan is our master is a slavery we enjoy. We, we, we think this is life. 
And then Jesus buys us out and we realize what we were enslaved to. To redeem something also, it always has a cost. We'll get to this in in verse 20. The cost is our sin debt and the price that is paid is Jesus's life. Of course, from this great benefit of redemption, we get the total forgiveness of sin. No longer do you have sin charged to your account. I love Pastor Jess often uses that illustration of a bank account, right? Spiritually, right? You have credited or charged to one account sin and all of these things. Jesus wipes it away and gives you his complete and total righteousness, total forgiveness through Jesus. So the life of Jesus, now he always did what was right. That is now our life. That's what it means to be united to Christ. So we've been transferred from one kingdom into another through the redemption of Jesus. Then verses 15 through 20, we look at the king to whom we've been united, right? If this is picturing for us this transfer of kingdoms, well, now he's going to talk about who is the king? Who's the one that's paid this price? So Paul writes, he, speaking about Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. I want to summarize again these verses. And really what Paul is doing here is he's describing the two creations that Jesus is over. Verses 15 through 17, we see Jesus as the eternal son of God. He's the image of God. He is God's perfect representation in the world, his perfect perfect representative in the world, right? And we get this from Genesis chapter one and two, where God creates man and he creates him in his own image. The idea of image is reflection, representative in the world. Of course, sin wrecks that. Now, mankind does not properly and perfectly image God in the world, right? That's, that's why, so Jesus comes as the perfect and final representation perfect and final image of God, the reflection of God in the world. That's why we sing in Hark the Herald Angels, sing second Adam from above, right? He is the true and better Adam, as we sing also in Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. So he is the image of the invisible God. Then he is the preeminent one. That's what's meant by this phrase, firstborn. Firstborn is not speaking of created order, because Jesus was not created, you go look at Psalm 89 and see how David is spoken of as the firstborn when he was actually the last born in his family. But firstborn is speaking of preeminence. He is the preeminent one and he is preeminent because he is the creator. All things were made by him. Not only is the creator, but he's the sustainer, right? He keeps everything going. Why is it that the world holds together the way it does? Because Jesus is upholding it by the word of his power, as Hebrews chapter one says. And then notice verse 16, 
He is the end goal of creation, right? All things are created for him, right? One day when Jesus is ruling as king, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess to Jesus Christ as Lord. The physical realm is created by Jesus. He's the ruler over it. So also the spiritual realm. And then verses 18 through 20, we see that he's not only a creator of this physical realm, but he's the creator of the new creation, which is the church. So the eternal son of God in verses 18 through 20 is the head of the church. Now, the church is, of course, the body of Jesus on the earth, right? Jesus' physical body is not on the earth any longer, right? It's in heaven, right? He's raised in heaven now in a glorified body as we will be one day. But meanwhile, because we are united to him, we are described as the body of Christ on earth. This is what Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 12, that wonderful illustration of the church as a body. You're all members. We're all members individually of it, each having a specific role, and we are all working together under the head, who is Christ. Jesus is the most important part of the body, just like your head is probably the most important part of your body. You lose your head, you no longer function, right? So Jesus is the preeminent resurrected one. That's what we see here also as well, right? The firstborn from the dead, right? He is the preeminent resurrected one. He has died and risen again. He has gone ahead. He is the forerunner of our salvation. <clears throat> as he is, so we will be one day. He is the pre preeminent one over his new creation, which is the church. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, behold, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So these are my points summaries from these verses about union with Christ. Number three, because of union with Christ, I am united to the creator and sustainer of all things, right? You have a personal relationship, a vital connection to the one who has made all things and the one who sustains all things, right? Now, that's important to realize the applications, the implications of that for our lives means that nothing is random, nothing is out of his control, right? And I can go to the one to whom all things are ruled by and sustained by and know that I am in his care. The fourth point is this, because of union with Christ, I am part of his body. I'm united to him. Again, vitally connected is the picture of union with Christ cannot be severed from him. I am part of his body. That again has implications for how we live our lives one toward another, towards others who are also in the body of Christ. But that's a sermon for another time. Then verses 20 through 23, and this is the, where we'll spend the rest of our time. Verses 20 through 23, we see Jesus as the reconciler. And here we need to as we think about this idea of union with Christ, we see this, this, this uh, another, or I want to make another point, I guess. I want to start this section with this truth, this implication about union with Christ. So my point number five is this. Because of union with Christ, I am now reconciled to God and at peace with God because I've been united to Christ. 
I am now reconciled to God and at peace with him. Verse 20, Paul says, through him, through Christ, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. What does it mean to reconcile something? It means to bring peace between two parties that were at odds or opposed to one another. It is to restore good relations. Well, God is the one who has been offended by our sin and rebellion, and Jesus is the reconciler, right? We're not on good terms with God, if you can use it that way. Yet God, through Christ, has reconciled sinners to himself through the blood of Jesus. And this work of reconciliation has brought about a change in relationship. We are now at peace with God. And this peace is wonderful because as we're going to see in verse 21 and following, peaceableness was not the state of our relationship prior to this work of reconciliation. It's actually the exact opposite, right? Look at verse 21. This is our state prior to being reconciled. Paul says, and you, right? So here he's describing the background and he uses a couple of phrases to help us understand this condition. Right, first of all, he uses that word alienated. Another word that you could substitute would be estranged. Think about estranged family members. What does that mean for your relationship with them, right? There's no communication, distance, broken relationship. And almost always in an estranged relationship, there's tension or there's hostility between the two parties, right? This is the state of our relationship to God apart from reconciliation, alienated, estranged. And this is the state of every single person who doesn't know Christ, right? If you don't know Jesus Christ as your savior, you're not vitally connected to him. His life is not your life. Then this is you. So there's a warning here. So you're alienated. And then he says hostile in mind. And this is not that there's just this great gulf and distance, but there's active hostility towards God. We actively hate him. Right? In, in the rest of the New Testament, this word for hostility is almost always translated as enemy or foe. Right? That's who, who we are. Right? Paul in Romans 1, a passage we're familiar with, in verse 30, what does he say about those who are under the wrath of God? They are haters of God. That's what it means to be hostile in mind. And then he says that you are doing evil deeds. Right? That we are alienated, estranged, and hostile in mind affects our actions. Our best of deeds, apart from being united to Christ, would be considered evil deeds. Right? This is what Isaiah talks about in Isaiah 64. We have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Our best attempts to please God, even our best attempts as those under the wrath of God, are like polluted garments. Right? The, the picture there is, is, to put it in maybe more context appropriateness, right, is the idea of a, a rag that someone has used to clean themselves after they've gone to the bathroom, right? That's the idea. And he's saying, your best attempts is like trying to give God dirty toilet paper. That's what it means, a polluted garment. That's what our deeds look like to God apart from Christ. So if you think that you can somehow reconcile yourself to God on your own merits, it's never going to happen. 
That's why this work of reconciliation is such a wonderful, wonderful thing. Verse 22. So, and you, in verse 21, all of these things, verse 22, a change. He has now reconciled. Paul used all those phrases in verse 21 because it shows how glorious this reconciliation truly is. How vast and how marvelous it is. You know, we don't, self-awareness and um, looking at ourselves is not always something we like to do because the picture isn't very pretty, right? This, the mirror of God's word sometimes illuminates things. We're like, oh man, I didn't know I was really that bad. I didn't know I still struggled in that way, right? But when we see properly how far we are from God, what our sin is before God, then what God has done for us becomes overwhelming. This is a glorious truth. The other thing to consider, this, this work of reconciliation, this is a decisive act of God's grace. He doesn't need to reconcile sinners to himself. He doesn't, the king of the kingdom doesn't need to go and bring subjects into the kingdom. It's not that we add anything or that it, something was missing, right? This is a decisive act of God's grace. We, the offending party, justly deserve whatever punishment should be doled out to us, yet God in grace has now reconciled sinners to himself all through the means of Christ's sacrifice. It's all of grace. And he says in verse 22, he has done this in his body of flesh by his death. So this is through Jesus who was crucified on a cross, buried in a tomb, rises three days later. This is where it starts. We have been reconciled to him we've been united to christ by virtue of his death burial and resurrection you know in romans chapter 6 paul uses a similar picture as this right and he says there in romans 6 that we have died to sin that we've been raised to life with him right the the idea the understanding that paul is dealing with here in colossians chapter 1 and what paul is saying in Romans chapter six, is that when Jesus died on the cross, it's as if you died on the cross. And when Jesus was buried in the tomb, it was as if you were buried in the tomb. And when Jesus rose from the dead, it's as if you rose from the dead. That's what it means to be united to Christ. You have his life and his triumph over death, your life and your triumph over death. That's what it means to be united to Christ. Jesus' life is now my life. And then verse 22, this reconciliation has a purpose, right? That you would be holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Now, each one of us can read that verse and in a sense there's a bit of astonishment. I in my day-to-day -day life right now am not holy completely not blameless not above reproach right if i stood before god in my own merits i would be full of blame and full of reproach but the glorious news of this reconciliation is that i am no longer an enemy of god but that i now stand before god as a friend as one who is in christ God does not see my faults and my sins, but sees only one who is above reproach, one who is blameless. This is what we talk about, positional truths, 
or, re- or what I talked about earlier, representative union with Christ. This is who I am. And that reality does affect the way that I live my life. That living union, representative union changes the way that I live my life. Now I can obey the Lord. I can please him. I can be holy. Perfectly? No. But one day I will, in glory, be perfected. And that's what all things are moving towards. And then we get to verse 23. And here Paul uses this word, if. He almost seems to introduce a condition, right? And it almost seems like he could be saying, this wonderful reconciliation is only for those who continue in the faith. And that is what he's saying, right? And verses like this can cause pain and consternation to arise in our minds as we think, can I lose my salvation? Can I be a Christian one day and not a Christian the next? What if my faith is weak or small? What do I do now? Is my salvation dependent upon my ability to always have a strong faith? If that's the case, I'm in trouble. Well, let me tell you, Paul says, if, because he's talking about people who really truly have experienced the reality of being reconciled to God through Christ. If that has happened, then all of the things that we've just talked about, the work of reconciliation, the justification, the righteousness that is imputed to us, our being presented to God as holy and blameless and above reproach, all of those things are true and they never change. If you have been reconciled to God through Christ, those realities never go away. But if that has not happened then where are you, right? You're not in that place. You're not above reproach. You're not reconciled to God. You're still in a verse 21 state, alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, and the end goal of our sin is death, eternal separation from God. If you think about all the things that Paul talks about in Colossians 1, which we briefly touched on this morning, regarding what God has done for us in our salvation, that transfer us from the transfer from the kingdom of dark light or kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, that reconciliation work, the peace that has been brought, the all of this work to present us as perfect and complete. You think about that, what is that? It's a full and complete and total salvation. There's nothing missing in it. Right? And what do we do? We had nothing to it except for what Martin Luther said, right? The sin that made it necessary. That's the only thing we contribute to our salvation. So if you take what Paul has said so far in this passage, you consider the salvation is full and great, something you contribute nothing, then how contrary would it be for you to keep yourself in the salvation, right? If what God has provided is that good, then, then it would be absolutely contradictory for you to maintain your state before God on your own. You know, if Paul is teaching here in verse 23, and I hope I've made the case that he's not teaching you can lose your salvation, but he would be a spiritual schizophrenic, right? Like he's saying all these great and glorious truths about your salvation, but hold on a second. In the end, you actually have to maintain your state before God on your own, right? That would be a huge inconsistency. That's not a full and effective salvation, but that is not at all what Paul is teaching here. The if here is not conditional in the sense that you can lose something. 
The if here in verse 23 is saying, if you continue believing the hope of the gospel, you're a Christian, right? Pastor just mentions this quite often, right? Like true Christians keep believing the gospel, right? You will not fall away. You can be assured of that. If you are in Jesus Christ, you are saved and sealed and secured for all of eternity. And in moments of life, when your doubts and questions and uncertainties arise, what do you do? You go back to the basics of the gospel. You go back to verse 21. What an astonishing fact that I who was alienated, hostile in mind, an enemy of God, have been reconciled. What a glorious fact that I am a sinner and my only hope is Jesus Christ. His righteousness credited to my account. So when you have those moments, those doubts and uncertainties, those questions that arise, go back to the truth of the gospel. Recognize that Jesus died for sinners and that by simply trusting in Jesus to be your only satisfaction for sins, you are continuing in the faith. You are continuing to believe the gospel. You'll be stable and steadfast. So this leads my last two points and we'll be done. Number six, union with Christ provides the life-sustaining spiritual nourishment I need so that I continue in the faith, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. Why is it that you continue to believe the gospel? It's because the life of Jesus is flowing through you. Your life, his life is your life. That's why you continue to believe. And finally, number seven, union with Christ means I have a full salvation. You know, the Christian does not gradually accumulate parts of your salvation. It's not like a video game where you're collecting tokens and, well, I got the justification token today. Maybe in a year I can get some sanctification or maybe I'll be adopted by then. That's not what he's saying at all. The realities of justification, adoption, sanctification do not come to me in pieces. I have them in their entirety. By virtue of union with Christ, I have all the benefits of Christ all at once in fullest measure, right? It's like a cup that's filled to the full and overflowing, never to be emptied again. You don't add anything to it. You get a salvation that is full and complete. That's what it means to be united to Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this glorious salvation which you have planned from all eternity choosing to save sinners through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And now we stand before you in this marvelous place where we've been united to Jesus and everything that is true of him is true of us. And so, Father, I pray that for each one of us that we would grow in greater knowledge of this, greater love and affection for you, and that we might see that the Christian life we have power to live a life that pleases you and to experience joy and delight in our lives as we live in obedience to you. So may these truths be more real to us each and every day as we spend time in your word. We pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.